Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you just stumbled across this video, we hope you stick around and become a part of what God's doing here. Today we've come to the final message in our series from John's Gospel called Life Full and Unending. We've looked at some of Jesus' greatest promises about life and eternity, and today the focus is on how we respond to them. And there's no question that how we respond to them matters. Just ask Jean Bouchant. She runs a cleaning company in France and had failed to pay an employee after they lost a major contract. And the employee decided to sue. The problem was that Bouchant never responded. She didn't respond to calls. She didn't respond to letters. She didn't respond to court orders. Finally, the former employee claimed that Pushan had died and asked the judge to order her husband and son to pay the damages. Surprisingly, he agreed. <laughs> Without a death certificate, he accepted that Pushan was dead and with this legal ruling, her identity papers, her health insurance, her bank account, and her driver's license were all deemed invalid. She had to spend the next three years trying to prove to the court she was, in fact, alive. Eventually, it took an affidavit from her doctor testifying to her continued existence and a lot of legal argument back and forth to prove that Jean Pusham was, in fact, alive. I think that sooner or later, we'll all face a Jean Pusham moment. There'll come a time when we'll be evaluated by our response to Jesus and his offer of life. We may think that we're alive spiritually, we may claim that we're alive spiritually, but the court may evaluate our response and declare us dead. Today's passage is written to prepare us for that day. It gives us a behind-the-scenes look at two of Jesus' disciples. They were both in, their, in the inner circle. They were both there for his sermons. And they both would have claimed to be alive. But their responses show that only one of them really was. Their responses give us a mirror by which to examine our own response to Jesus. If you have your Bible handy, I encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. If you don't have a Bible, just click on the link for today's passage in the YouTube description below. I'll start reading at John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, 
whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of God. Now, this passage shows us a difference between those who see riches in Christ and those who see just religion in Christ. Let's start with those who see riches in Christ. Those are the people who can't give enough. It's not so much that they just are inherently more devoted or more generous or more given to serving, but they've received something so precious through faith in Jesus that it changes them and it changes how they see everything else in their lives. Those who see riches in Christ can't give enough. Now, as the scene opens, Jesus has returned to Bethany and it's now six days before the Passover. The Passover will end in crucifixion for Jesus. And so this time marker is a warning that Jesus's death hangs like a shadow over everything that takes place. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And with his return, they decided to put on a dinner for him. The passage is filled with natural expressions of love and gratitude. For instance, in verse 2, Martha is serving, but it's not a burden for her. In Luke 10, 40, there's an earlier scene where Martha is stressed out by her hospitality load, and she actually tells Jesus to tell her sister off and accuses him of not caring that she's doing all the work herself. This time, there's none of that. The workload's the same, but she's not comparing or complaining. Her serving is an expression of her love. Then Lazarus, he's reclined at the table with Jesus. And the impression we're given is that there's nowhere he'd rather be. Fellowship with Jesus isn't a chore or a bother. There's nowhere he'd prefer to, to go off. He's not too busy to be with Jesus. He delights to spend time with him. But with Martha and Lazarus introduced, we can't help but wonder where Mary is. In verse 3, we find her in the same place that she appears in every other episode with Jesus in this gospel. She's at his feet. It's a position of humility, but there's no hint that she resents it. She's not fighting for a place at the table. Instead, as, as we see her in that verse, she says this, or it says this, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Everything about what she does is wild and extravagant. A host at the time would normally provide a small amount of oil for the dry faces of the guests. And a servant might wash their feet with a towel and some water. Mary goes way beyond that. She takes a flask with a pound of pure nard in it. Now, a large perfume today has about 100 milliliters in it. This is three to four times that amount. But it's the quality, not the quantity, that's so remarkable. Nard was imported from the mountains of northern India. And verse 5 tells us that it was worth 300 denarii, which was a standard laborer's annual income at the time. In today's terms, we're talking about at least a $25,000 bottle of perfume. I don't know about you, but 
I don't like to buy perfume or cologne that I can't earn optimum points on. So I'm not typically in the kinds of stores that are charging this kind of sum for a bottle of, uh, of perfume or cologne. Matthew 26, 7 tells us that she poured it on Jesus' head. And this verse tells us that she anointed his feet. Likely Jesus was covered in it from head to toe. And in case you're wondering, wiping someone's feet with your hair, that wasn't a thing. In fact, women in the first century hardly ever put their hair down in public, let alone wash people's feet with it. This is sheer abandon. It's a reckless and extravagant display of love. She was anointing her king and there was urgency because she knew this might be the last chance that she had. And the verse tells us that the entire house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Even days later, as Jesus hung on the cross, it would be a scene of death, but there would be this beautiful fragrance of life. Have you ever seen someone go overboard in their devotion to Jesus? Have you known people who have made unreasonable expressions of love to him? If not, you should really get to know some more people here at Grace. I regularly see Mary-like sacrifices of Jesus in this church. We have people in their 80s who are taking on new ministries. There are people who would give what the world would call inexplicable amounts of money. There are some who invest long hours to memorize, memorize huge portions of scripture. Some of the busiest people I know approach their ministry commitments with the devotion of a second job. There are some people who make sacrifices to do what's right when they could compromise and enjoy so much more comfort. And if you were to add up the hours that some people invest in prayer each week, you might wonder if it was too much. But someone who has seen riches in Christ can't give enough. It's not as if they're driven by guilt or obligation. You can't pressure someone into handing over $25,000 worth of perfume. But when you've been moved by the extravagant love and sacrifice of Jesus for you, you can't help but respond. Let me ask you though, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you serve with the freedom and the joy that Martha showed? Do you savor time and fellowship with Jesus the way Lazarus did? Do you give with sacrifice and commitment the way Mary did? Does your response to what Jesus has done give evidence that you're alive, that something is going on spiritually within you? Or in evaluating your repeated lack of response, is a court liable to declare that you're spiritually dead? That's the question that this passage forces us to confront. Those who see riches in Christ can't give enough. But maybe you haven't seen that yet. Maybe all you see is religion in Christ. You see, Jesus is the one who gives you your rules. He's the one who establishes your traditions. You check in on him when you want to get a spiritual fill-up, but you're not breaking any perfume bottles or anything. Nobody's ever accused you of washing their feet with your hair. <laughs> you're not in danger of overdoing your commitment to Jesus, if you're honest. Those who see religion in Christ resent any sacrifice. Judas is a prime example of this. Notice how he's 
uh, introduced in our passage. In verse 4, he's called one of Jesus's disciples. Like those who share their deconstruction stories today, he was at all the Bible studies, he attended all the prayer meetings, and he went on all the mission trips. And yet before the end of the week, he would, have, he would betray and abandon Jesus forever. In this passage, we get an insight into why. When Mary anointed Jesus with a flask of luxury perfume, it was shocking to everyone. Matthew 26, 8 says that when the disciples saw it, they were indignant and then said, why this waste? As we've said, Mary's response to Jesus seemed excessive and over the top. But that's always the case for those who've seen spiritual riches in him. Judas's response showed even more contempt, though. In verse 5, he says this, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He's actually calculated the cost of the perfume, and he feels the loss. He argues that it should have been sold and given to the poor because he just doesn't see Jesus as all that valuable. He doesn't understand Jesus that way. He's in it for what he can get, not what he can give. In fact, verse 6 tells us that he was the treasure for the disciples and was skimming from the purse and cooking the books. And you have to wonder how he ended up there. Surely he didn't start following Jesus with the thought, if I get close to the teacher, maybe I could rob him. I doubt that he became a disciple with the goal of one day betraying him. I think initially he was pretty impressed with Jesus. He saw him as a good teacher who was making a difference. Judas wanted to join the cause. He was willing to do his part. He saw religion in Christ and he was willing to be religious. What I mean is that he was open to doing his part in order to fit in, especially if it came with a bit of religious recognition. He would do the bare minimum, but he certainly wasn't looking to make any sacrifices. He just didn't see Jesus as worth that much. Sure, Jesus preached some good sermons, and it felt good to be seen with him and be admired by others, but it was more of a transaction for Judas. Jesus hadn't affected him at the core of who he was. Faith was more extracurricular for Judas. It was just religion. And so when he saw how easy it would be to take some money of the take some of the ministry money, he convinced himself he deserved it. He was doing a valuable service after all. He shouldn't be expected to do it for free. From there, it wasn't too big of a stretch for him to betray and abandon Jesus altogether. Judas saw that Jesus was going to die and figured that he should at least earn a bit of money and score some points with the religious folks who were going to take him out. Mary saw that Jesus was going to die, but she made a completely different calculation. She felt a sense of urgency to anoint him as her king and express, express the depth of her love and devotion to him. In Matthew 26, 10, Jesus says, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Hundreds of years later, we're still talking about how she responded to Jesus and how Judas responded as well. 
Their responses are held up to us of examples of life and death. They were both seen as disciples, but one found riches in Christ and couldn't give enough, and the other just saw religion in Jesus and resented any sacrifice. Which of their steps are you following in? We often make Judas out to be such a terrible villain that we can't see how normal he was. You follow in Judas's footsteps when anything more than a minimum of service feels like a burden to you. You follow in Judas's footsteps when your offering is about giving as little as you can to avoid feeling guilty. You follow in Judas's footsteps when things like baptism just feels like too much effort. You follow in Judas's footsteps when reading the Bible and being a part of fellowship with other believers never feels like something you have time for. It just doesn't feel that important because you still don't see Jesus as that important. Those who see riches in Christ can't give enough. But those who just see religion in him resent any sacrifice. It's possible to think that you're alive when you're actually dead. But eventually, the court of heaven will judge our response to Jesus. Put your life up to the mirror of God's word now before it's too late. And see Jesus for who he is. See the riches that are in a relationship with him. Get past the transaction of religion, where you try to get as much as you can from him and give up as little as possible in the process. Start living with the abandonment of Mary. Respond to Jesus with a faith and devotion that's worthy of him. Now, Judas should have known better. He should have known what Mary knew. But there were others who weren't at that point yet. So let's move to where the passage does and consider the crowd. Let's look at what was happening with those in the crowd who weren't disciples yet. And if you're still in the crowd yourself, this is an opportunity to see Jesus rightly and respond. Now, what we've been looking at so far is a rare, intimate moment with the disciples. But as always, it wasn't long before the crowd would gather. Verse 9 says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only in account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. With so many in Jerusalem for the Passover, a Jesus sighting would be exciting. <laughs> On our vacation to New York, when we saw Jimmy Fallon walking along the street, you can bet we stopped and tried to get, get close to him. That's what's happening with the crowds here. And maybe that's where you're at. The crowd here wanted to see Jesus, but they also wanted to see Lazarus. Maybe they'd get to ask some questions about what it was like for those four days before Jesus resurrected him. It's likely that Lazarus at least gave some account of his dying days, followed by his death, and then how Jesus raised him back to life. We know that because the authorities decide in verse 10 that just killing Jesus isn't enough. They're going to have to kill Lazarus as well. They see his testimony as dangerous. Verse 11 says, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The crowd here believed in Jesus in the sense that he, they knew he was something special. But it's not clear what kind of faith they have yet. 
We don't know if they have Mary faith or Judas faith. Still too early to tell. And maybe that's where you're at. You're impressed with Jesus. You take him seriously and you treat him with respect. But you're not sure how you're going to respond to him. The old Puritans had a way of getting to the heart of faith. They used to ask, have you bought the pearl? They ministered at a time when practically everyone went to church. Almost everyone said they believed in Jesus. But they knew that many of those who did were actually spiritually dead. So they asked, have you bought the pearl? It's a reference to a parable Jesus told in Matthew 13. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold sold all that he had and bought it. People like Judas just see Jesus as a religious figure. They figure he's worth a bit of religious respect, a little bit of religious obligation. People like Mary realize he's far more than that. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's a shepherd of our souls. He's the way and the truth and the life. He's the resurrection. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. He's the lamb of God. He's the one who died for our sins and purchased our forgiveness. He's worth more than anything or anyone this world can offer. And when people see him for who he is, they'd give up anything to have him. Have you bought the pearl? Do you see riches in Christ? Have you responded with the devotion that he's worthy of? Or have you decided that your sin's worth more than him? Have you decided that Jesus is more of a hobby than a savior to you? Have you bought the pearl? Rebecca McLaughlin shares the story of the classic Russian novel, Eugene Onegin. In it, Onegin is a bored urban aristocrat who meets an innocent young countrywoman named Tatiana. When they meet at a family dinner, she falls in love with him. And afterward, she writes him a letter expressing her love. To her disappointment, he doesn't respond. When they meet again, he tells her that her letter was touching, but he would soon grow bored of marriage to her. She's devastated. Years later, Onegin goes to a St. Petersburg ball and sees a stunning, beautiful woman. It's Tatiana, who has grown up and now married. She tries to, he tries to win her back, but this time she refuses him. Once the door was open, she offered him her love, but now it is shut. McLaughlin writes, for many of us, it's easy to reject Jesus now. Like Tatiana's letter to Onegin, his offer is touching, but we believe we will be happier without such a commitment. We worry he will cramp our style. So we move on with life and leave him in the spiritual countryside. But one day, she says, the Bible warns we will see Jesus in all his glory, our eyes painfully open to his majesty. We'll know in that moment that all our greatest treasures were nothing compared with him, and we'll bitterly regret that decision. Have you bought the pearl? He's the one of infinite worth. 
there are spiritual riches in Jesus Christ. So respond to him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see the sacrifice of Mary. We see the love that she showed, and it was without regard for cost, for even thought of convention. In her mind, nobody else in the room mattered because her eyes were fixed on Jesus. Father, help us to see Jesus as she did. Open our eyes to the riches that there are in him. Help us to see him as one who is of infinite worth. And may we give up our sin, give up our complacency. May we give up anything that would stand between us and him. Give us the courage to buy the pearl. Father, I pray for any who are blind to their true spiritual condition. For any who, like Judas, for, for a time thought they were spiritually alive when they were actually spiritually dead. Give them eyes to see and to examine the true nature of their spiritual condition before you. And in their repentance, show them that there is grace. Show them that we have time now to turn to you and to embrace you and to experience the fullness of life that you hold out to each one. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this message has helped you to examine your response to Jesus' invitation to life. I hope it's helped you to see that there are riches in Christ that stir our devotion. But when we just see religion in Jesus, we resent any sacrifice. If you have questions or are interested in learning more about how to respond to Jesus, then send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.